Welcome to Season 2 of the Alliance Theatre Podcast, an exploration of theatre and the people who make it happen. Susan V. Booth, the Jennings Hertz Artistic Director of the Alliance Theatre. She joined the Alliance back in 2001, and you can read her bio online, but there's a pretty good chance that anything cool that the Alliance has done is due to her leadership. If you've heard of the Collision Project, the Candida National Graduate Playwriting Competition, Riser Atlanta Artist Lab, as well as commercial producing partnerships for tons of Broadway musicals like The Prom, and has also directed many a world premiere. So we are lucky to have her and are even more lucky to have had the chance to sit down and ask her a few questions. And just a heads up, this is a a very candid conversation, so uh, just be forewarned that you might hear some cursing, some dogs barking, some ums. But other than that, sit back, relax, and enjoy this conversation with Susan V. Booth, Jennings Hertz Artistic Director. Gonna ease into it. Hi, Susan Booth, how's it going? (laughs) Hi, Anza U3. It's going really well. Good. I'm glad to have you on. So thank you for taking some time on this Friday to talk to us. It is my pleasure. So my first question, I want to kind of, I do want to address 2020 for you and kind of talk about that. And then I want to shift into Susan Booth, the person, um, and talk a little bit about you as an artist and a human, uh, because that, frankly, is more interesting to me than... um, (laughs) what everybody's kind of talking about right now. So um, my first question is, how has your 2020 been? (laughs) (laughs) Gosh, Ansley, it's been surprising. Um, You know, I have been sharing this quote from Kierkegaard and as soon as you say a quote from Kierkegaard people think oh holy crap she's going to spout philosophy and understand that most of Kierkegaard is is impenetrable to me but but there's this one thing where he says um, life can only be understood backwards but must be lived forwards and man oh man have I been thinking about that apropos of 2020 right because when this adventure began in early spring, there was no precedent for it other than SARS, maybe, or there, there had been particularly virulent flus now and again, right? And, and the media would hype them up and we'd all be shamed into getting our flu shot. And at first it seemed maybe it was that, and then very quickly, it wasn't that. And then, then it became politicized, which was weird as Wayne, right? Like we are already weren't polarized enough. We now had our physical health as a polarizing force. So my 2020, I suspect like everybody else's, has felt like all the GPSs are gone, all the maps have been altered, and any frame of reference that's backwards looking is really not material. So the notion became, what does this day demand? And as it got more and more durational, one starts to realize if you don't couple what does this day demand with what joy might this day bring? What joy might I bring to this day? You're sunk. (laughs) You're just sunk in what the poets used to call the sloth of despondence, right? It, It just, it's bad. And the necessity to pull yourself up while you're pulling yourself through is real. So how did you do that? How do you do that? Well, I fail regularly. Uh, I, I dare say probably daily. Um, 
the things that work, I, I get maniacally sweaty every day with some kind of exercise because that endorphin release, that focus on something below uh, my, my overworking brain is really important. You mentioned a weekend delight sitting on the porch, being, being outside, being made mindful. You know, I, I, I have pursued meditation out the yin yang and I, I, I fail, I fail, I fail. I keep trying, but I fail. That's why they call it a practice, right? So I, the truthful phrase would be, I am made mindful as opposed to I become mindful because I become sounds like I do it. I think the universe uh, does it. I am made mindful of just how finite and small we are against the beauty and scope of the universe when I'm out and about. And I, I try to let the world remind me of that. When you say that you fail, I would, I would suggest that you do a good job of hiding it, first of all, um, because I don't think that everyone has that perception of you. Um, how do you not, how, how did you learn not to judge yourself when you face those, what you would call failures? And how do you, I guess, release those and keep moving forward? Well, let's, let's do some level setting here. The notion that I don't judge myself, specious, completely <laughs> specious. Um, I, I spend quite vast quantities of time judging myself. What, what I work on, what I have been working on for a great many years is to look that noise. Oh, that's a mixed metaphor, looking noise in the face. Well, uh, to sit with the noise of self-judgment, because when you bat it away and say it's not happening, it doesn't just sulk quietly in the corner. It actually revs itself up, right? And it becomes just an impossible wall of noise. So I try to look it in the face. I, I try to acknowledge what it is, acknowledge where I feel it in my body, and then to let it go. But until you say, oh, that's what's happening, it hovers. It hovers around the edges of your focus. It hovers around the edges of any good time you might start to have. It's like, you know, in the Grimm's fairy tale, there's always that, that crone who shows up on the 16th birthday of the princess and she says, you will prick your finger and die, right? I feel like, um, <laughs> that crone is, is uh, somebody that I, I have learned to just look in the face and dance with a little bit. Um, so let's say that. I think um, urgency is not a bad thing. Urgency is a really powerful thing. And I think when things feel urgent, that abates judgment, your own or others. And it's, it revs your engine in wonderful ways. The, the two words that have been in my spoken vocabulary and my, my emotional vocabulary for the last eight months have been essential and urgent. And everyone will define a situation or an imperative differently on those continuums. But just on a personal level, I find when something feels essential, that I just can't fuck around with my own hurt feelings. Right? It's too important. So that's useful. I muted myself because of the yard men. Um, That, that's tricky because I think about, you gave this speech when you um, were directing small mouth sounds 
about um, stopping to understand your emotions and kind of learning to master them so that they don't master you. Yeah. And I think that it's just a, I, I don't, I, I want to use the term flaw right now, a flaw in human nature that um, we do kind of view our world through our emotions and our reactions. Um, and I, it, it takes a lot of brain power and a lot of self-control to be able to catch yourself and um, kind of organize your mind in a way that you're able to objectively keep moving forward. Yeah. That's my equivalent of the yard guys. Well, was, people, I'm not alone. <laughs> that was Fred Booth losing his shit. Get used to it because it's part of the daily melody of my household. Um, so I just, I, I don't know. I guess that's, um, it's an impressive task and I don't, how did you even think, how did your relationship with that way of thinking and being exist? Because I don't, I would argue that it's not natural, right? Like we're not. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I mean, first of all, occupational hazard, right? What, what do we do for a living? We study the human narrative. We figure out how it manifests in texts, how we best embody that manifestation on a stage. We torque ourselves into pretzels, imagining how an audience is responding to how will they like this human narrative versus that human narrative? Cause that's finally what, you know, choosing a play is right. Um, so, so occupational hazard, we think about our thoughts and our emotions and those of others a whole lot more in this practice than, than I suspect folks who aren't in this practice do. Um, so there's that. I also, you know, I, I, I write a lot and it started early and I think it was initially that, that wildly self-indulgent teenage thing of everything I think and feel is interesting. Um, what, what it became over time was a way to quite literally encounter what was going on inside and and recognize patterns and recognize where where stuff was helping me and where stuff was getting in my way and again recognition doesn't abate <laughs> but but it it gives you it gives you room to do some other stuff i think Mike Schleifer figured out early on that the quickest way to make me absolutely crazy was to leave me an ambiguity about something, right? So if you ever want to just, just seriously fuck with me, this is the best way to do it. You, you call me up or you email and you say, something really urgent has come up that involves you. I need to talk to you about it. How's next Thursday? <laughs> right? Um, so the act of writing, uh, the act of conversations like this one are, I find profoundly useful just to turn the light on and, and look at what's going on in there. And once that's at least acknowledged, there's just so much more room to move forward. This is just out of my own curiosity, are, are your parents, were your parents thinking like that or how are you? You know, I, I, my, I'm, I'm the youngest of four kids and my siblings and I talk a lot about things that we all have in common and we never remember a time when our, when our mom or our dad sat us down and taught them, right? So I suspect both of them were deeply introspective people they didn't talk about it. I mean, we, we were, 
we were, and, and, and I would say of all four of us still are, um, such super waspy people who, oh my God, don't talk about your feelings, right? It was like, you don't talk about money, you don't talk about religion, you don't talk about your feelings. And that's, I'm, I'm an outlier there. But that didn't mean that, that my folks weren't wrestling with them. One of the, one of the big gifts of um, growing up was encountering particularly my mother as an adult and talking about books, talking about politics, talking about all the things we weren't supposed to talk about and discovering that she just wrestled with so many beasts and, and actually really did want to talk about them, right? And I, uh, I have books of hers. She was an English lit major and I have books of hers and the stuff scribbled in the margin is just fantastic and illuminating, right? My dad was just, um, didn't, uh, he, he for me is still the paragon of, of right and wrong. He, he, he just, you know when you're doing right and you know when you're doing wrong and just don't come with the gray zone in between. And a warm and loving man whose family came first. But man, oh man, if you said, Dad, what's going on emotionally? <laughs> I mean, the, the story, uh, the story I, I, I tell people, and it sounds like it's going to be this really super sad story, but I think it is so illuminating. Um, my dad died in 2010. And I went home to visit. I was um, about to start rehearsal for a project um, at the Alabama Shakespeare Festival. And my dad had been in, had, had been in a, a losing battle with cancer for a little while. And so I went to check in and things were much, much worse than either my mother or father had let on on the phone. And so what I thought was going to be a short visit before I went away for six weeks uh, turned out to be a visit where I needed to set up hospice and I needed to help my mother understand that she wasn't actually helping my father by not acknowledging what condition he was in. So flash forward to the end of this visit and I have a choice to make. I can either call up the theater in, uh, in Alabama and say, I'm sorry, I can't direct this play, which puts a company of actors a playwright, uh, or I can listen to what the hospice folks are telling me, which is my dad's only going to be around a few more days, but he's still lucid at this point. And I can actually use this opportunity to say goodbye and I can go do my job, which is a tough decision. But that's what I decided. And I went down to my dad's room and I knew I couldn't say goodbye. I was, I, I, <laughs> last thing I said to him was I'm just going upstairs. But I went down to my dad's room and I said, um, I want to thank you. You were an amazing parent. And I didn't know how amazing until I became one myself and realized I actually kind of knew how to do it and that I'm proud of that skill. And then I learned it from you. And my father was a little smile on his face and his eyes were closed and he was kind of nodding. <laughs> and he said, let's not get carried away. Last thing he said. <laughs> At which point I said, okay, dad, just go upstairs. And I thought that classic, you know, was not not the last line he said in his entire lifetime, but it was our last exchange. And I thought, yes, perfect. I can go now. Let's not get carried away. Um, I, I feel like my best friends are like that. Like, um, we'll, we'll touch on the, the emotional stuff. Like, Hey, yeah, I love you. Like, okay, great. Yeah. But got it covered. That's, that's enough of that. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about fun stuff. Uh -huh. Um, okay. So how was hopping back to 2020 and yeah. this world a little bit, yeah. how was the Terry process. Have you done anything? Um, it's, it's, 
it, we are very much still in process. So one of the most terrifying things that you can do, particularly if, if you've had the great gift of getting to work in your chosen field for a long time, is to go do something you have no idea how to do, right? It's, it's just crazy pants and so much fun. And you wake up in the middle of the night before the first day for me or the first day of, of going and filming and, and you're, you feel like, oh my gosh, are my pencils sharpened, right? You have, you know, I'm going into my first day of third grade anxieties. Um, it was so much fun. I was happily surrounded by incredibly generous folks, some of whom were learning this themselves, some of whom knew it so much better than I did, all of whom were generous and supportive. The process that we're in right now, we filmed a ridiculously packed schedule over the course of two weeks. And now we're in the post-production, which is where the film editor will send me, you know, three or four minutes of, of content at a time. And he's out of 30 takes, he's cobbled together a sequence. And now I look at it on a screen and I scribble notes saying, hey, at one minute, 14 seconds, we we jump cut from close to far away and we do it in the middle of a lyric line and it and it it throws me can we you know so it's it's back and forth that way which is on some level the equivalent of once a show's in run-throughs i scribble my notes and i talk to my actors and i say you know if if you turn away from ansley in the middle of that line it implies you've either lost interest or lost courage. Is that intentional, right? I mean, that's, you know, directors geek out on that stuff. So it's sort of the same thing, but instead of it being an actor and another actor, it's an actor and a camera. And what's the conversation, right? It's fascinating. It's absolutely fascinating. It was really fun. Did you enjoy it? Do you think you'll get a film? <laughs> yes, because I've I've now I've now done. I've, I actually I I did uh, acknowledge a few days in. I have done film once before. I directed an IMAX when I was living in Chicago for the Adler Planetarium, and. I have no idea how or why I got the gig, but I got it. And I called in so many favors. I asked my favorite actors in the world if they would do this. And it was, it was about a space travel. It was a educational IMAX about traveling to Mars. And in working with the director of photography on that project, he said, there's an effect we're gonna add in post-production where whenever one of the astronauts finishes speaking, we'll see their face on a screen as if it's on a NASA monitor, right? When they finish speaking, the way that they'll sign off is they'll put their index finger in the upper left-hand corner of the screen, they'll, they'll tap an icon, and they'll swipe that icon off the screen. Oh, that sounds reasonable. And he said, we'll add the icon in post-production. So I explained this to the actors, and they, they dutifully nod their heads, and we film this thing, and every time they finish one of their transmissions, they put their index finger up, sort of above their forehead and they swipe it violently in the opposite direction. Well, I don't know what happened in post-production, but that icon never got added. And so the first time I actually saw this thing on a screen the size of a football field, some of the best actors in Chicago were doing this inexplicable gesture every time they finished speaking. So that was actually my first. I would have been really successful. Yeah. I would have been so mad. Um, 
just, just for my own curiosity, what do you think about Chicago? How did you like Chicago? I, I loved Chicago. And I, I have tried to sort out, is it because I loved the years from, you know, 21 to 37, which are kind of great years. But I think I really loved Chicago. I, I have enormously sentimental, nostalgic feelings about it. The thing is, at any given time, there's over a hundred theater companies, and some of them are are the the granddaddies that have been around for a long, long time. Many of them are the companies that are started by the the recent batch of Northwestern grads or DePaul grads, and some of those tiny punky storefront theaters will last a year and some will last five and 10 years and some will grow up to be the next wave of the big ones. But because the ecosystem is so dense, you can bounce. You start out in these tiny punky theater companies, right? And whether it's an actor, a playwright, director, designer, you, you hone your craft and people are seeing your work constantly who work for slightly bigger theaters, right? And, and then if, if the universe smiles and you end up working at the really big theaters, you're still bouncing to the midsize and the smalls just because everywhere it's a different exercise, everywhere it's a new lesson. And I, to live in a city where without benefit of much television and film, actors, directors, make livings, they, they raise kids, right? It, it, I thought it was like that everywhere. It was a pretty glorious place to work for those years. Where did your relationship with theater begin? You know, I want to have a really <laughs> cool, great answer, right? I, I wish I had a cool, great answer. The, the best I can figure out is when I was growing up in first Youngstown, Ohio, and then Canton, Ohio, my great uncle was a guy named Cameron Booth. He was a painter. He, his work is actually in a lot of national and international collections. He was, during World War II, he and Romare Bearden were cultural ambassadors on behalf of the WPA in Europe. They spent three years, what an idea, as cultural ambassadors. And his paintings were all over our house. When he would come to visit, my family, which was populated and still is by bankers and lawyers and stockbrokers, right? It was like royalty was visiting. Uncle Cam is coming for dinner, right? And there was this excitement and he was funny and smart and he drove a convertible, which I thought was incredibly cool. And he was this man who seemed to know at least a little bit about everything was engaged and curious about everybody at the table. And I think somehow this notion burrowed into my head that artists were fantastic, fascinating, working people with great dignity, right? Because that's what he was. And so I'm the youngest of four, were crazy competitive and I needed to find something that, you know, neither of my brothers had excelled at yet. So I think somewhere in my, my DNA, the notion of this pursuit of beauty and emotion was a really valid pursuit, every bit as valid and non-weird as banking or being a lawyer. Although I tell everybody, my, my brother, the stockbroker, every gathering, every family gathering, comes up to me and says, so how are things in the 
theater. And he does this gesture with his hands that's like flailing around like that crazy pants thing you do. Well, it's good, Scott. How are things in the crazy pants market? I feel like, and I might be wrong, but I feel like I've heard you before talk about code switching in your world. Was it difficult to figure out how, because to me, it, it seems like you exist in two worlds. Like you said earlier, you're talking about ambiguity and how that drives you bonkers, but I feel like with what you do, you kind of would have to exist in that ambiguous world because it seems like a lot of the business minded stockbrokers, those types of thinkers, clear cut, it's one way and artists are in this kind of floaty, hippy dippy <laughs> world. And, and you, you have to, I would say you out of all people, go back and forth and do exist in both worlds from my perspective. Um, am I totally off? Yes and no. Here's the thing. No, you're not off at all in that there is an emotional language that we all have, right? And, and oftentimes artists have the great gift of wearing their emotional language very close to the skin. Whereas sort of like my father, uh, the, the corporate titans tend to keep their emotional language pretty far removed from the surface. But you know, that said the, the it's not that you're far off, it's that I, I think I'm learning that ultimately the goal is just to be consistently authentic, right? I mean, I do, when, when I first started doing the artistic director part of this job, there was one side of my closet that had the board meeting, donor meeting kind of clothes. And there was another part of my closet that had the I'm in rehearsal clothes, right? And they're the obvious things, you know, where do you wear heels? Where, where do you wear jeans? And it, it felt, I felt a little bit performative in the boardroom, right? I mean, I could do it. I, I, I know that world. Uh, and I can speak that language. But what you start to realize is particularly people who are donors, supporters, board members at a theater are, are madly in love with our art form. And the notion that you would somehow purge yourself of those aspects isn't actually doing anybody any favors. Now, I will tell you, I. I swear like a sailor in rehearsal and I, I, I try not to do that in the boardroom. Um, I've, I've been trying to learn to do less of it in staff gatherings. That's sort of my, my middle ground where I'm um, judicious with the F-bombs, but not, not absent. Um, I think the highest possible pursuit for anybody is to learn who they are and just to be that person no matter where they are right and then you know and i can't visit that on other people that I, I i think that'd be cool and i think anytime i i finish a conversation and i have no concern about what i said because what i said was just what i thought i feel pretty good it takes a lot of courage. Yeah, but it takes a lot of energy to construct and perform. It does. 
at times, you know? Yeah, I've been, I've, this is kind of, um, the, I think when you're able to read people a little bit and kind of understand what they're saying, it is, it's almost like, you know how your dad, right and wrong, good and yep. bad. Like, yep. Um, it's like, does my authenticity clash with this person's expectation? And am I ready to face kind of that stress of being wrong, even though it may not feel wrong? And, and I got to say, you know, you mentioned earlier your, your generation having grown up with a, a different relationship to technology, right? The, the Slack channels, the message boards, the, the trending tweets, what they do is, is jack up our concern and awareness about how am I perceived? right? And they don't just jack up our awareness, we can actually check in. And chances are really good, we will discover somebody who loathes us. And if we're lucky, we'll discover somebody who maybe even more than tolerates us, right? But the notion that, that there's this chorus of disapproval to easily be found can hamper the commitment to being authentic, right? What will they think? What will they think? And I, I get it. It's so human. It's so very human. But I'm aware that I, I get more done and that's not, you know, not in the sense of I'm checking off my to-do list, but I get more done in, in, in relationships, in, in life. If I don't tune to that noise. If I, who am I have total like anonymity, right? Like I am able to kind of hide in my own little world and um, what is it? Lick my wounds in private and stuff like that. Yeah. I, I have a little bit more freedom. I feel like to um, be authentic in a way. And I wonder if, this cancel culture is spooky and toxic i think because it's teaching people that we can't mess up right. um, and that if people you know like the whole my angelo when you know better you do better and yeah. Yeah. to judge people and to um decide this is who this person is because of um I guess a, sh a lack of perspective, maybe. Yeah. Um, I, I, I just, you're a, a, an incredibly brave person, honestly, to be in the position that you're in and to be able to unapologetically be yourself. And um, I just, I'm like, <laughs> I don't know how you do it. And it's, I mean, again, with the level setting, though, it's not that, that the, it, we're in an art form that has something called criticism. I mean, holy crap, you know, my dentist doesn't have her dentisting skills analyzed in online the day after our appointment, right? So it, embedded in our practice is the idea of evaluation, right? 
And the notion that anybody says, I don't care, I don't care. There's a continuum. Moving towards a place where you care less turns out for me to be helpful. The trick is you should never stop listening. You should never stop having curiosity about how your work as an artist, how the work of an organization that you've been entrusted to lead is being received. So learning to listen, be informed, but not be derailed by input is the process. Because simply saying, I don't, I don't care what anyone thinks. Well, A, no, you can't. That's not humanly possible, I don't think. Uh, and B, that's, that's, that's cheating, right? <laughs> a bunch of years ago, I, I directed a play that had some really provocative content in it. And at the first preview, Previews are, are, can be devastating for directors, right? Because you've been working in your nice little hot house with your, your team of artists, and now you're going to sit in an audience. And ostensibly, you're there to pay attention to the work on stage, but come on, you're paying attention to the audience. So it's the first preview of this piece that's got super provocative content, and I'm towards the back of the theater, and uh, these four people walk in, it's two couples. And they're talking about the Thai place where they went to dinner. And it's a one act. And the lights come down and the show starts. And I'm, I'm like listening. And, and the lights come up afterwards. And they, they turn the, you know, pick their coats up off the chair. And they continue talking about the Thai restaurant. <laughs> and I thought, okay. All right. So... The notion that everyone will approve, ridiculous. The notion that everyone will like, ridiculous. And the lesson to me, after I you know, wept quietly in a bathroom stall, uh, the lesson to me was, was I... Whose, whose judgment was I using for the, the provocation of this piece? My own, Waspy, I'm from Ohio. Okay, well, that's one. But maybe, maybe I needed to build a greater edge into that piece if I really wanted it to cut through the conversation about pod CU. Okay. <laughs> anyway, so I, I critique is out there. It's always out there. And having a intentional relationship with it is part of the job. I feel like it, it would be another practice to learn to remain open despite all of the criticism and judgment and self judgment and yeah, um, yeah. Right on. Um, I'm a little bit pissed that we only have 12 minutes so I'm gonna look at my <laughs> list really quickly I'm gonna ask this question just because um it's the alliance theater podcast and I feel like it's important to ask Go to town. um but then I I do want to I'm I might do like a speed round of questions that oh. I'm curious about okay um so you've been the artistic director at the alliance for almost 20 years correct I am in the middle of my 20th year insane <laughs> right right i how has it evolved since you've gotten here and what are you the most proud of ah i love that our commitment to this art form is larger than plays on a stage i love that our commitment to this art form is about what does Atlanta need and want and how can we be a partner to them in achieving it? So we show up in the educational space in a massive way. So we show up in partnerships with 
social justice and civic dialogue organizations in a major way. I love that we are an exporter, not an importer of work, right? The, the writers that have had their first works with us who are out there in our field now give me great pride. And I love that we have donors and board members and audience members who have a feeling of such ownership of our, our theater. I, I didn't know for a long time, and this is terrible admission, I didn't know why we were called the Alliance. Didn't know. It wasn't when the search committee, you know, reached out to me and they sent me all this paperwork about the Alliance Theater. One in there. And as I got here and I started to get to know the place, I thought, well, it's a perfect name, right? We're the Alliance Theater. We're not the Transaction Theater, right? This is so great. I, then I found I had nothing to do with that. Uh, nothing to do with it at all. But I, I, I'm going to just, I'm just going to make a new origin story for the Alliance that we're called the Alliance Theater because we believe in alliances with, with educators, with multiple communities, with multiple points of view. We should be called the Alliance Theater. And look, we are. Who cares why? <laughs> I, um, I, I'm like, do I say this? I'm going to say it. The Alliance is the big dog in town. It's <laughs> in Atlanta, right? Like it's yeah. and in the Southeast. And I came from a smaller theater. And I think this might be a totally jaded way to think of this, but I think a lot of the smaller theaters are a little bit jealous of the resources that the Alliance have, um, that the Alliance has. And I, so I came in with an assumption of what I thought this big dog in town was going to be. Um, and I will say that it's, it's been humbling to have been wrong. Um, because I, it is an alliance and it's, it's cool to, to see and to know and experience and be able to form my own opinion around it. Um, so I, I don't know. I'm, I was kind of closed off when I came and now I'm like, man, they snuck right in. They, uh, they, they mean what they say. And that's not always easy to trust. I would say, especially in, uh, there, that makes so much sense. And there's always a tension in, in any ecosystem, it, particularly one that's got such a sizable gap in terms of resource, right? When, when George Shakespeare went away, it really pointed up um, that gap. We have a, a responsibility to be of as great a service to our local community as we have a responsibility to be a national home for the leading artists in our field, right? And that responsibility I take super seriously. I mean, you ask, you know, what am I most proud of? I'm pretty proud of the artist lab. I, I'm, I'm pretty proud of the Spelman leadership fellows, right? And those are, those are projects that we committed to because they needed to exist, not because there was some grant we were chasing, right? And I'm, I'm proud of those. I think it's reason to be proud, so. I mean, you kind of answered this, but especially considering this year and all of the tribulations that we've kind of faced as a, a across the globe, what do you do to take care of yourself? I lean into my family really hard. Um, I, I have an amazing husband. I have an amazing daughter. My 
uh, oldest stepdaughter and her boyfriend moved in with us because they had to get the heck out of Brooklyn. Um, they are, I am, I am mom, you know, I am, I am wife. I am, and I love those roles and leaning into those and taking care of one another has been a big part of mental health, being outside and being appreciative of uh, the beauty of that and, and how pin dot small we are against the larger landscape is leveling. Um, and I love, it's a terrible thing to admit, I love having the kind of control over my time that this weird living in your house world allows. Yes, it, it, it forces some things, but it also allows some things. So if I, if I wanna do my non-meeting work at some ridiculous middle of the night hour, I can. I can also decide, you know what? It's gorgeous out there and I'm, I'm gonna go for a run from nine to 10 and not go to any meetings. And I feel, I feel really super guilty every time I do that and I love it. <laughs> I, uh, I also feel guilty about stepping outside for a moment. And There you go, don't. Here, let's give each other permission. You um, don't have to feel bad. Now tell me. Hey, you don't have to feel bad. Okay, there, there. All right. Thank you. All actions have been granted thus forward. Um, okay, so we're wrapping up. Is there anything that I didn't ask that you think I should have asked? Or is there anything? You've asked really cool questions. This has been fun. Thanks. It's been fun for me too. And I had so many more, but um, it'll come in, in due time. So um, I appreciate you again taking the time to, to talk to me and to talk to us. And here's to the rest of 2020. May it, may it, uh, may it take a drastic turn to the better. Thank you. You've been listening to the Alliance Theater podcast. For news and upcoming episodes, go to alliancetheater.org slash podcast. For questions, comments, concerns, and ideas, email podcast at alliancetheater.org.